Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of June 25th, 2018. On this week's show, Ken Early of the Irish Times joins us to talk about World Cup matters, including whether this is the year for England, whether this is another year for Germany, and whether it will ever be the year for Argentina. It will again. The Ringers' Ben Lindbergh will also chat with us about baseball's devious plots to add more teams and more playoff teams, and make the designated hitter a universal thing. And Jay Caspian Kang will explain why it's time to kill the NBA draft and replace it with something better. Joining me in Slate's Washington, D.C. studio this week is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and the Colt minor league baseball classic, Wild and Outside. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. That was... An instruction from Remy is the man, the username from somebody who reviewed us on iTunes who describes him or herself as a first-time reviewer, long-time listener, and was wondering why the Colt minor league baseball classic, Wild and Outside, does not get pub. We do. We give it pub sometimes. Occasionally. And we've discussed why before. So, Remy, go back. Listen to every episode. <laughs> we can't remember when it was, but we talked about why. I don't include that in my little bio line. The Colt Minor League Baseball Classic, Wild and Outside. I like that part, the Colt. Uh, how about we start talking about the World Cup? Let's get right into it. Let's be good hosts and invite our guest in right away. Joining us from a media center in central Moscow, it is Ken Early. He writes about soccer for the Irish Times and occasionally for Slate. He is also one of the hosts of the Second Captain's podcast. You've been to many a World Cup, um, and you've been traveling around Russia to go to games. I think you've been to six games so far. How has the experience been, um, sort of the in-stadium experience, and how has the country um, been as a host, and how how do people feel about the World Cup being there? Uh, I think it's been really great so far. Um, If you're talking about the in-stadium experience, it's pretty much indistinguishable from every other World Cup. I mean, it's a very kind of homogenized experience um, that, you know, it's it's the FIFA World Cup experience and it's pretty much the same. It doesn't really matter where you are. It's only the weather that changes. Uh, in terms of uh, the country, uh, I mean, people are, are clearly really excited about it, really happy to have all these foreigners here. I mean, I've just come today from Nizhny Novgorod, which is a city to the east of, of Moscow, um, where, which formerly was closed to all foreigners. It was like a place where I think they did a lot of high-level military stuff during the Cold War and they didn't want any foreigners walking around. Um, I don't think still that it's a place that will attract masses of tourists from abroad. So I think just the, the to see their streets packed with people from England and people from Panama uh, really made people happy. Actually, there was one thing that I saw on the Metro from the game yesterday, after the game, a bunch of England fans got on the train and started singing one of their sort of tournament songs, All the Way, We're Going All the Way. And then when they finished, they finished that. They suddenly burst into a chant of 
Russia, Russia, you know, for... And and what was amazing was just looking around, seeing the, the faces of the Russians lighting up with delight. England still has plenty of time for its hearts to be broken and for that song to be proven what has been proven year after year in World Cup after World Cup since 1966. But they play, played pretty well against weak opposition in the first two games. Um, you went to both of those, obviously, Ken, and you wrote a piece that we'll be posting on Slate um, after we are done with this conversation. Is this really a different English model for how to create a World Cup team? And is it one that might actually succeed on, uh, in this tournament? It depends what you mean by succeed in the tournament. If you mean win the tournament, then no. no. Uh, I mean, I'm, I can't guarantee that England won't win the World Cup, but I would be amazed. I would be astonished if they did. But, you know, they're a pretty decent team. Um, is it a new English model? Not, I think, by design. I think this is something that's happened with English football without the establishment of English football really noticing or directing the process. It's something that's happened from the bottom up. English football isn't really quite so English anymore. Right. It's, it's a lot more open to foreign influence than it has been. And I think this, is, this has to do with um, foreign influence in the league, you know, foreign players and coaches coming to, to play in the Premier League, of which now, as Gareth Southgate always says, we only have 33% of the players in, in the league. Um, but it also has to do with the world in which the, the more globalized world in which these players have grown up. The game of the tournament thus far was contested by Sweden and then the team that's going to eventually beat England on penalties later in this World Cup, uh, Germany. And it was the kind of tension that you rarely see in the second group stage game of a World Cup that Germany were either going to go out if they lost to Sweden or if it was a draw, they were going to be in a pretty precarious situation. And then the strike by Tony Kroos um, right at could have been the last kick of the game potentially to give Germany the win was just totally thrilling. Um, what do you make of this Germany team? Is this a thing, Ken, where we're going to look back at this and they're going to like overcome early obstacles and it will just be the Germany we know and maybe love? Well, I think it's still a little too early to say because we have to see if Germany are, are going to turn up against South Korea because they didn't start too well against uh, Sweden and they really were torn to pieces by by uh, Mexico. I think Sa I can see South Korea taking very much the Mexican approach to playing against Germany, which is to sit deep and hit them in a counterattack. And the difference between South Korea and Sweden is that South Korea do have real speed in attack, um, with Son particularly, who's really, really dangerous uh, and a really pacey player. So you could see Germany being vulnerable to some of the same tactics that Mexico used against South Korea there does you know I mean I, I went to all the rather all but one of Germany's matches in the 2014 World Cup when they went all the way to the final and won they are nothing like that team the, the team that we have now is, is is nothing like as good I mean that team not only had you know I mean there's, there's a couple of players like Philipp Lahm and Bastian Schweinsteiger most notably who, who are now retired who, who this team is missing Manuel Neuer the goalkeeper hadn't just come off a season where he was injured. He was in he was in much better form. But really, they, they had just a kind of a collective purpose about them, which I haven't seen from this team yet. Argentina would be the other team that looks really bad 
that work that we would have been expecting to to make it to another final. Um, Messi looks underserviced. He's alone out there. Their defense looks shoddy. They're in last place in their group, and there's, a, I think, a much better chance that Argentina won't get out of the group than Germany at this point. Well, the Argentina story is, is, the, is the most um, amazing operatic saga of the World Cup. How could they be so awful? How could they be so appallingly terrible as they were against Croatia? How could the manager get things so wrong? How could so many players play so badly? How could Lionel Messi be so apparently overcome by, you know, crumbling under the pressure of, of having to lead such a terrible team uh, towards what he clearly can't persuade himself as anything other than a complete, team. total doom. Exactly. He, he, it's like he can't, he, he, he doesn't seem to be able to make himself believe that Argentina is capable of any better. And he certainly doesn't seem to be transmitting any confidence or energy to his teammates. In fact, it seems very much the opposite as though he's a figure who inhibits them as though they feel, you know, they're almost embarrassed to be sharing the pitch uh, with, with this, you know, with this um, uh, historic talent. I mean, the, the coach, Sam Pauli, said this. It's one of the most amazing things I've ever heard a manager say. You know, the, the reality of the Argentina squad, you know, uh, obscures uh, Messi's talent. You know, people saying, oh, you know, Messi should have done more, should have helped us out more. And he said, look, our players are so bad that, like, uh, it's very difficult for him to look good. This is the manager of the team <laughs> speaking. Yeah, when have you ever? You don't. That is not a normal situation. That's that's a really, really pathological situation. Well, the players have said they want the manager not to coach them in the third game of the group. That's probably not a good sign. Well, well, here's the thing. I mean, so so there's all this stuff coming out of the Argentina camp, which you know, you know, rumors of punch-ups. You know, Mascherano uh, supposedly involved in a a punch-up with another player. He said he didn't. Although everyone was saying, "Well, why have you got a black eye then?" I suppose it is the kind of thing that can happen in training. Leaked uh, audio recordings. Diego Simeone, the Argentinian manager of of Atletico Madrid, uh, is you know on WhatsApp sending an audio note to his mate, his assistant Herman Burgos, also Argentinian, in which he dissects the disaster of the team, pins pins most of the blame on the coach, but then makes some scathing comments about Lionel Messi as well. I mean, when I say scathing, he's not saying this is Messi's fault, but what he said was. Which one of them would you pick? I mean, when I say which one, it's which one of Messi or Ronaldo. Be honest, which one of them would you pick for a normal team? And it's clearly going to be Cristiano. What he means by a normal team is, okay, it's fine for Lilo Messi when he plays with Barcelona. We've got this, in this really sophisticated environment with great players playing a, you know, a, a very evolved system which is designed to get him the ball in exactly the areas of field where he wants to receive it, in exactly the areas of the field where he can do damage, and take him out of that and put him into a normal sort of a team, or in Argentina's case, a below uh, normal, an, abnor- an abnormally bad team, and suddenly he doesn't seem to be able to do anything. Whereas Ronaldo, this was the point that Simeone was making, and this isn't just when when Simeone says it. It has so much more weight than if it's simply a, a journalist or you know someone on Twitter. People are making the same point, but this is Diego Simeone, who is you know re- regarded as one of the uh, one of the outstanding coaches working in Europe at this moment, and he's saying that if I've got a normal team and I've got the opportunity to choose one of Messi or Ronaldo, there's only one of them I'm going to pick, and it isn't going to be our boy. It's going to be Cristiano, because he can score a goal out of nothing. It doesn't matter what the level is of the game. It doesn't matter. He doesn't seem to need to have great teammates. In fact, unlike Messi, he seems to enjoy 
it's, it's, it's an unfair comparison because Portugal are better than Argentina. They are giving him a better platform on which to perform. But the fact is he can, he can head in a corner, he can score a free kick. He always seems to be sort of up for it. This is the fascinating thing about um, high-level international soccer is that, like, there's no free agency. I mean, you can do a one-time yeah. switch, I suppose. But, like, this is, like, harkens back to the days in sports when you were just, like, stuck. Like, Messi has quit his national team before, but obviously everyone knew at the time that it was just a fit of peak and he would be back. I mean, Mo Salah is talking about how he's unhappy with Egypt and he was like talking about uh, oh, maybe I want to walk away that's not going to happen either like these guys yeah. just have to stay with these like no matter how fucked up the federation is no matter how bad the manager is no matter how crappy their teammates are they just got to stick it out and it's fascinating to watch and it's like certainly different than how club soccer works yeah it's, a, it's just a little bit more like um, life you know where you're trapped in uh, circumstances uh, you're a victim of of your own fate, and there's nothing that you can struggle as you might. You can't really escape it. I mean, maybe, you know, you mentioned Mel Sal. I think he's going to be even more upset now because I've just watched Saudi Arabia score the winning goal against <laughs> Egypt in the in the last minute of injury oh, time. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> Mohamed Salah earlier scored a goal, and I don't know if you saw the uh, celebration, but there wasn't one. It was one of those where the like you, you see where the player used to play for the club that he's just scored against. Yeah. Uh, Salah, Salah scored uh, against Saudi Arabia and, and essentially didn't react. I understand this story about him being unhappy to the point of thinking about quitting Egypt is true. Uh, I mean, Egypt, uh, for some reason, I, I don't know the exact machinations that led to them choosing Grozny as their training base. But when you're in Grozny and Ramzan Kadyrov, the 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 local uh, strongman and leader takes an interest in you. You sort of have to turn up for the photo ops. Yeah, uh, I understand Salah was granted honorary citizenship. Uh, certainly these photos appeared of, of him with Kadyrov, and uh, he then w- was hammered on social media. I'm just, I'm just looking at him now. He's, he doesn't look too happy. My God, I hope this isn't his last game. What a horrible uh, World Cup it's been for that guy. It, it's, it's just all falling apart for, for Salah so horribly since Sergio Ramos uh, put him down in yeah. the in the Champions League final. Everything everything to that point was just going so well, and then suddenly he hits the ground, shoulder out, and 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 he. The worst thing he even comes out of this World Cup also with regrets. You know, uh, why didn't he play the first game against Uruguay? Why didn't he even play fifteen or twenty minutes? The coach Hector Cooper, conservative Argentinian coach, not a, a risk averse kind of guy, decided that he didn't want to put him in. Uh, and maybe risk him aggravating the injury. But I think we can see from the way that, oh my God, the referee's just taking a selfie. With, no, it's not the referee. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a man. Sorry. Most, most, it's it's a, man, a man wearing 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 a top the same color as the referee's, <laughs> but not actually the referee. Sal is trying to go off the field, and a guy comes up to him to get a selfie, and he just said, oh God. Live, People live need commentary. to be a bit more understanding. They People do. need to be more understanding of, Let, these, uh, of these players. Let's end on a, a happier note. I thought maybe we could just go around and talk about the best uh, thing, our favorite thing that we've seen and can we can get one from you that you saw in person but the James Rodriguez pass against Poland just obviously brings back memories of him being you know for a lot of the 2014 tournament the most exciting young player and that form kind of hasn't been there for him in between the 2014 and 2018 World Cups but just the ability to see that ball and then execute it was just 
unbelievable. And it might be worth setting that up. I mean, he was he was coming up the left side, and he basically swung a fifty yard ball around three retreating defenders, sprinting backwards. It was a thing of beauty. Uh, oh yeah. What's your uh, What's your favorite thing, Stefan? If you've well, got that, one, that might have been it. Um, I, I I really enjoy just the the one of the things for the, the at the World Cup that I most love is watching countries that we don't normally. Uh, get to see and watching this sort of enthusiasm build. And part of that is watching the game and sort of appreciating some of the beauty and the excitement. But it's also something that goes on inside your head, like, oh, Senegal, wow. I mean, I know Mane, but I don't know how good they might be. And they play just a lovely, exciting match with Japan on Sunday. And this is only their second World Cup appearance ever. Right? Ever, yeah. And just those are the sort of moments of you, like you, you, you get a rooting interest in a nation and a player that you might not have had otherwise. And that's a, that was, that's a terrific group. You've got Colombia, Senegal, and Japan. Two of those three are going to go forward. Um, and... I, I love chaos too. So the the groups that have that kind of chaos are the ones that sort of get you sticking around to the the, the third match of group play, like the Mexico, Germany, Sweden, South Korea group, and uh, the Argentina, Iceland, Nigeria, Croatia group. So it's those moments that sort of start drawing you into the tournament with more more and more passion as as each game goes by. And Ken, what's the best thing that you've seen? Well, I mean, one that we've already mentioned, the, the Kraus free kick was was. Uh, was just amazing to do that in that in those circumstances thing but you know Cristiano Ronaldo I was I was at the game between uh, Portugal and Spain and to see and he did something along the same lines as Kroos you know to score a hat trick with a free kick from that distance with a totally different free kick from what he usually uh, takes he usually tries to kick the ball as hard as he can this time he chipped it and um and scored an amazing goal uh, to to finish an amazing game but I also want to mention Another game that I went to was Brazil against Costa Rica and St. Petersburg. And I don't think I've laughed as much sitting in the press box as, as <laughs> at any other game. Well, did Brazil against Costa Rica with Neymar just having an absolute... I mean, Neymar against the referee, Bjorn Kuypers, who just kept telling him to get up and shut up. There, there, I've never seen a, a match where, where the referee almost seemed to curse the player as much as the player was cursing the referee. <laughs> no no just, selfie afterwards? No, no. I don't think there would have been a selfie. I don't, I'm not sure Neymar would have agreed. But, but the performance of Neymar in the last 20 minutes was just was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in terms of just this, this utter brattishness, this like... Ridiculous. I mean, this is a 26-year-old man. I mean, they, the Brazilian players were talking about him afterwards. Oh, the kid, you know, you don't know how much pressure the kids are. He's 26. You know, he's been the star of, of Brazil for like five years. Come on, he, we should see a bit more from him. That, but he was having a, uh, he, he was sort of losing the plot. He got booked for, for descents. He tried to win a penalty with a dive. Then he pulled out a rainbow flick in injury time. I mean, an, an amazing piece of skill um, to sort of humiliate the defenders. And scored a goal in the in the 97th minute. I mean, a, a goal that didn't really matter. It's happened. Then, then had a breakdown. Then he 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 knelt on the on the field, covered his hand, and started you know sobbing, shoulders shuddering with sobs. I mean, you can't take your eyes off this guy for a second. I mean, I know I I don't understand. I don't understand what's going on in his head. I don't understand how he can behave in such a stupid way. It's actually set off a big debate in in Brazil, where lots of people were saying. Neymar is a disgrace. This is embarrassing for Brazil to see him act in such a petulant, childish, uh, and dishonest way, trying to cheat all the time. It, it shames us in Brazil. And then other Brazilians saying, 
for instance, I saw Janino Pernambucano, who was a great player for Brazil about 10 years ago, um, saying, this is Getino Brasileiro. This is the Brazilian way. Yeah, what do you expect them to be perfect gentlemen? You know, it's all about going out there and tricking your opponent, deceiving your opponent, getting the better of him. And if you trick the referee, then all the better. So, and then you know, the first group of people retort, "Well, you're just the kind of people who cheats on your taxes. You're the reason that this country. You're the reason that this country is on its knees." Jetino Brasileiro, if it wasn't for that, you know, this country would be in a much better place, and so on and so forth. So, so Neymar kind of uh, setting off setting off a few debates there. I have to say, I mean, he is he is entertaining. I cannot take that away from him. All right, we'll be uh, keeping an eye on him. Ken Early reporting from uh, Moscow, where the final score was Uruguay 3, Russia nil. both teams uh, moving on. Ken, uh, thank you, as always, for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, guys. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to our baseball conversation with Ben Lindberg of The Ringer, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, another of our guests today, Jay Caspian Kang, will be here and we'll talk to him about how to choose a baseball team for your child, maybe a football team or a basketball team too. But what are the principles behind selecting a sports team for a human who is barely sentient? If you want to hear that conversation, you should join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Whether pitchers should hit is not a new conversation in Major League Baseball. It's been taking place for more than a century. In fact, our friend Ben Lindbergh traces that history and lays out the latest case for why it's finally time to 86 pitchers hitting in a piece that he wrote for The Ringer. He is here now. Hey, Ben. Hey, yeah, I made great use of your favorite website and mine, newspapers.com, to dig up old examples of people complaining about the DH, which go back to the 19th century or so. I was going to ask you where you got those excellent quotes, and the quotes really are excellent. Um, I think this is like legit death watch time for the DH, but not because <laughs> baseball officials agree that this is a stupid anachronism with dwindling aesthetic or strategic charm. Before we get to the real reasons, let us discuss your argument for going full designated hitter. It's basically that pitchers are at historically bad levels of hitting. Yeah, it's the same argument as always, really. Pitchers are really bad at this, except that they are worse at this now than they've ever been. And if we do the current checkup on pitcher offensive stats, they are batting 109 with a 141 on base percentage and a 138 slugging percentage. That is truly terrible. They're striking out about 43% of the time. And often the best outcome when a pitcher comes to the plate is that he lays down a sacrifice bunt, which is, I think, kind of a boring play and also a play that has largely been eradicated when a pitcher is not hitting. So that's kind of the best outcome. So that's really it. Pitchers are really bad at this. And I am in favor of a certain 
certain level of whimsy in sports, as I know that you guys are as well. So I like watching position players pitch every now and then, but I wouldn't like it if they did it every game. And that's where we are with pitcher sitting. It happens too often to appreciate it. So baseball in the last like decade or so, there's just been a like very pleasing kind of embrace of new strategies, whether it's the shift or this year we've seen relief pitchers starting games, which, you know, whatever you think of it, it's like interesting. It's like smart. It's like coaches and teams are like willing to like think and try new things. And it also feels whimsical. It does feel whimsical. But (laughs) is this a case where there's been a calculus of like every club that like we are just not going to care about this because it's not worth it. Like, wouldn't there be some sort of like arbitrage opportunity for a national league team to like really invest in turning this slot in the lineup into like, you know, a plus rather than this like gigantic gaping hole. Yeah, I'm sure if you really devoted yourself to it, maybe you could get some kind of edge there. There's a a Hall of Fame manager back from the 30s, 40s, 50s, Bucky Harris, who really made it a point of emphasis everywhere he went that his pitchers would hit. And they did. Everywhere he went, his pitchers got a bit better. And that was something of an edge for his teams. But these days, it's just so hard to do, and pitchers often aren't hitting on their way up. It's so by just the time so they... hard to do. Oh, come on. <laughs> they're it's not just hitting so hard to like do. middle school. They're not hitting. Specialization right. has rendered pitching <laughs> pitchers hitting completely yeah. obsolete for kids. Did you, guys see, they... did you guys see in the college baseball regionals, LSU had this pitcher, Todd Peterson, um, and they had used like a, a bunch of their bench, and um, this guy had never hit in college. He was a reliever. And the manager asked him, like, can you hit it all? And he said, um, you know, yeah, I used to, like, hit bombs in high school. He goes out. He, like, clears the bases with a double off the wall. LSU wins the game. After the game, he admits he had, like, actually never hit before. Like, his <laughs> manager had never let him swing a bat. And he was just lying. But it was, like, yeah. the greatest moment of the season. Whimsy. Yeah. It's like a, there was like a 1% chance, but it paid off. <laughs> that is one of the arguments that people make in favor of pitcher hitting is that the rarer it gets that they do anything useful at all, the more special it seems when they do. Yeah, Bartolo Colon home run. My right, friend. exactly. Right. Maybe that one home run makes up for all of the outs and failed bunt attempts and strikeouts. <laughs> if that's your perspective, I can't disagree with you. It's a matter of taste. But by the time these guys get to the major leagues, they're not hitting in many cases all the way up. So the Giants have this starter named Andrew Suarez, who's been hitting now. He didn't hit in high school. Guys don't hit in college. They don't hit in the low minors. So they get to possibly T-ball, but I'm not sure that those skills transfer. And I got a lot of people in response to my article saying, well, why don't they just work on it? If they just dedicated themselves to this, they would get better. But we now have about 150 years of history (laughs) saying they're not going to get better. And I'm comfortable saying that's not a small sample. And these guys are not selected for their hitting ability at all. They're selected for their ability to throw really hard and throw a lot of pitches and throw the pitches where they want them to go. And hitting is just an entirely separate skill. So people say, well, you have to be an all-around player. You have to do everything. But we don't really ask (laughs) hitters to pitch. And pitchers field their position, right? Isn't that enough? But when hitters pitch, it's awesome. It is whimsical and awesome when they do pitch. Um, There's no reason to keep 
Let's keep letting them hit. But anyway, <laughs> let us move on to the actual reasons. And the actual reasons that I think that pitchers are not going to be hitting in two or five or ten years is that baseball is heading for a radical realignment. Radical. Radical. <laughs> um, the reason it's going to happen is because Rob Manford, the commissioner of baseball and owners are talking about moving toward expansion and realignment. And in doing that, one of the things that's being discussed is abolishing the American and national leagues, merging the two leagues basically to create geographically based dis, uh, divisions, probably eight divisions of four teams. And in doing so, the, the, that, the, the DH rule is just going to go out the window. This reminds me of uh, back when I was doing my End of America, like hypothetical series back in the day, like 10 years ago or however long ago it was, that there was this conspiracy theory that North America was all going to merge together mm-hmm. and that there was going to be a currency called the Amero and there would not be like this was like the next like the step Euro, after yeah. like NAFTA mm-hmm. that we would just all be like one one government. So basically, you're just feeding into conspiracy totally. here, Stefan, with like no American National League. We're all just going to use one set of rules. Uh, and, you know, the only way to go to a baseball game, Ben, is to like pay with the Amero. Like that's that's going <laughs> to mm-hmm. be it. And yeah. I'm totally fine with that. And I think you are, too, Ben. Yeah, well, the end of America scenarios were so sweet and innocent 10 years ago. (laughs) They're much darker. Yeah, I think that this is probably coming because, as you say, the incentives are aligned for everyone to want this because the owners want the expansion fees, which would be hundreds of millions of dollars per franchise. The players want more roster spots, more MLB players, essentially. So I think it is going to happen. And you can imagine in a sport that sees so much uproar where you have This debate about the DH that's been raging for 45 years unabated here, even as both leagues have kind of coexisted peacefully between that and, you know, people getting mad about intentional balls becoming automatic. I mean, that's a major issue in baseball. So you can imagine eradicating the leagues would be an even bigger one. But it does make sense in a lot of ways because the leagues at this point are more of a historical artifact than any real distinction. It's basically just the DH now that is actually separating this from just being an Eastern and Western conference like basketball and and football have. So it is kind of archaic and you could say that there is value to that historical consistency. But I agree. I mean, the teams in both leagues are playing each other throughout the year. Now there's constant interleague play. There aren't even two different sets of umpires per league the way that there used to be. There's just really no distinction other than the DH. And so if you want the optimal schedule just from a, a geographic perspective and you want to put the teams that are located close to each other in the same divisions, then it probably makes sense to do away with the league distinction. And a lot of people are going to be mad about that. One could argue that baseball itself is a historical artifact. Then. <laughs> I mean, I, would, I wouldn't dare say that, especially in front of you. But like <laughs> this often gets like dumped into the category of like, you know, quote unquote, traditionalists or what's the word? There, there's a word here. That, yeah, purists. That purists. Right. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about purists as much as we used to. Where's uh, Bob Costas stumping for the uh, the purists? But like that's how that's like the rubric that all of this stuff gets dumped into. And I'm curious if you feel like that's a fair characterization of any of the stuff we've been talking about, the DH ver- or league structure or, you know, the one that gets talked about a lot that I think people are generally more opposed to 
is the like extra inning shenanigans and like putting mm-hmm. ghost runners on on the base bases like starting in the twelfth inning or whatever. Like what what do you what would you call purity and what would you call just like logic? So when we talk about this, particularly with the DH and pitcher hitting, you have to adapt this almost paternalistic tone and say that, well, we know better. We know what the better brand of baseball is. And NL fans think pitcher hitting is great, but they just don't know what's good for them. And there's an argument that I think if the NL likes pitcher hitting and the AL likes DH, then maybe we should just keep it status quo. Everyone's happy. Why force someone to change if they don't think it's a problem? So I'm somewhat sympathetic to that as well as to the strategy arguments that maybe having a pitcher hit – You have to avoid that lineup slot because it's an automatic out, and so you have to do some lineup shenanigans to get around it. I I get it, and I think there is some value to historical consistency in a sport that has a really long history. That's one of the things that baseball has going for it, Mm -hmm. is that it's been around forever, and you can compare across eras. And so I am somewhat sympathetic to it, but I do think the game has to change in some ways, and we inherit these old structures that came around in the 19th century or early in the 20th century. And in some cases, there's no good reason to keep things that way other than that's the way they were always done before. Though I do like players leaving their gloves on the field. I think we should bring that back. Uh-huh. That would be fun. <laughs> um, if we look at uh, one, one of the other historical artifacts and the, uh, something that traditionalists may oppose would be shortening the season, the regular season, and going to 154-game schedule, which uh, baseball's uh, strategic planning committee – Uh, also has been discussing. um, And uh, Rob Manfred discussed this in an interview with Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic uh, last month. And he seemed pretty sympathetic to the idea that you can make up these lost games and and have a better balanced schedule um, as you add more teams and, and add playoffs. Yeah, there's been some discussion of a 154-game schedule, which in a way is more pure than the 162-game schedule because that's what we had from about 1904 to 1960 or so. And the baseball season is just so long, and there are a number of ways in which I think that hurts baseball. And I know a lot of fans think that it's great that baseball is always on. It's kind of the soundtrack to your summer, whatever the day, there's always baseball on. And that is, I think, a plus for the sport. But it makes it difficult to feel like any one game matters when there are so many games. And obviously, the owners aren't going to want to sacrifice games if it means less revenue. But in this alignment or realignment and expansion scenario, it would probably coincide with more playoffs, maybe more playoff teams and an extra round of playoffs. And so they would make their money up elsewhere. What do you think of our pal Sam Miller's idea that every team should make the playoffs? I kind of liked it, actually. (laughs) It's kind of compelling. I think that is something that we're going to see with expansion is that you're going to have more playoff teams. I know that one of the scenarios is that there would just be four divisions in each league if there are leagues anymore. And so you just have a division winner of each of those leagues. And Where we're going, we don't need leagues. Right. So I think you're going to see more playoff teams because I think it's lucrative and also the league likes getting people interested in their teams winning divisions, making the playoffs which is something that is particularly important given that MLB is actually suffering some attendance issues right now. Even as we're talking about adding teams, there is a kind of side conversation about why teams aren't drawing better this year. 
Maybe we should get rid of teams and add teams. That would solve everything. Just uh, end up back in the same place. What is your take on why attendance is down? And attendance, I should say, is down not a little bit. I mean, the last couple of years, it's dropped like a 1%. But this year, it's been off like 6 or 7%. It's rained a lot is one. That's Rob reason. Manfred's explanation. You don't think it's rained a lot? It has rained a lot, but that's his <laughs> complete explanation. But I think there's also some evidence that that even factoring out those rain dates – yeah, is down. it's down about five and a half percent compared to last year. So that gap is narrowing. I'd like to mm-hmm. see where it ends this season. It might be closer than it is now. It does have something to do with just a record setting number of rainouts and snow outs and freezing cold games in April. But even after that, there has been an attendance decline. And so there's a lot of talk about whether it's pace of play or whether it's strikeouts. I tend not to think that it's anything about the style of the game. If anything, I think you look at the markets and the teams that have seen the largest declines and they're not really surprises. It's the Blue Jays. It's the Marlins. It's the Orioles, the Tigers, the Royals, the Pirates, the Rangers, the White Sox, the Reds. These are all teams that are losing and perhaps more important teams that didn't really make an attempt to win this past offseason. They didn't really do anything to get their fans excited. And at the same time, league-wide ticket prices are up. So they're not really offering a discount to see these subpar products. So I think that's part of it. I'm looking forward to expansion. I really hope Portland gets a team. Who do you like? Portland? Yeah, Charlotte, Portland, Montreal, Mexico Nashville. City, yeah. Nashville. There's some good markets out there. There are. There's always, this, there's always this presumption that baseball shouldn't expand further, but I think that in some of these more densely populated markets that were densely populated 20 or 30 years ago and a more sensible approach to stadium construction, you know, more around the 35,000 seat mark. Expansion is so dumb, but continue. I disagree. <laughs> You're just like imagining a world that doesn't exist. Like, oh, we're going to build like totally sensible stadiums and not soak the public. Like that's ever happened. No, (laughs) we're still going to soak the public. I mean, that is part of it. Yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of a huge part of it, right? Like there's (laughs) no way that baseball could expand um, and that it would like be good for (laughs) – for those cities, like that seems that seems like it has to be a pretty major consideration now. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And also, as Manfred has said, we need to figure out what to do about terrible markets like Tampa Bay and and Oakland. So, how do we soak the public to get new stadiums built for them before we can soak the public to expand to other cities? Right, and they they can't expand until they figure out what's going on in Tampa Bay and Oakland because they have to preserve the specter of moving those teams in order to extract local funding for those ballparks, most likely. So those situations will have to be resolved before that leverage gets removed. Yeah, and if there are more teams, that would mean that there are going to be more bad teams mm-hmm. every year. I mean, I guess you could address that by... Um, you know, having more playoff teams as we've discussed, but this seems like it would line owners' pockets effectively, but I don't know if it would solve any of the fundamental issues that we've been talking about. It would probably exacerbate some of them. Uh, not as not not if pitchers don't have to hit. Everything will be solved. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Ben Lindbergh writes for The Ringer. He's the co-author with Sam Miller of The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. Ben, thanks a lot. My pleasure. This has been very blasphemous and impure and non-traditional. I've enjoyed it.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the number one overall pick in the 1947 Basketball Association of America draft, the Pittsburgh Ironmen selected Clifton McNeely out of Texas Western University. 71 years later, the Phoenix Suns took DeAndre Ayton, who will hopefully earn more cash in his pro career than the alleged $100,000 he got to allegedly commit to the University of Arizona, allegedly. But back to the draft, let's now imagine a world in which we did things differently, in which the worst teams weren't rewarded for their badness by getting allocated the best talent, and in which the world's best pre-professional athletes had some agency in choosing where they live and where they work. Joining us now to discuss this fantasy world is Jay Caspian Kang, who's a correspondent for HBO's Vice News Tonight. He's a writer at large for the New York Times Magazine and the co-host of Coin Talk, a podcast about internet money. How's it going, Jay? Good. How are you guys doing? I'm doing well. I'm going to start, as all good podcast segments start, by asking you to recite a Twitter thread that you wrote. <laughs> um, you kind of laid out your version of how um, a non-draft NBA would function. Can you just kind of lay that out for us now? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I started thinking about this about four years ago when the last collective bargain agreement started to really bother me. And this was between the league and the players union. And uh, I was trying to figure out why we had the NBA draft at all. Uh, and so I was thinking that what would be preferable to it, I mean, both in terms of labor, you know, in terms of being fair to players, but also in terms of entertainment, would be if there was some sort of set free agency period for all players who wanted to enter the NBA. So whether they be high school players, I mean, you could even be like a junior in high school if, you know, under my ideal system, uh, European players, and that uh, the, the, the teams would have to bid on, on the players uh, during this period. All the bids would be public because, you know, the public, the, I think that the, uh, the fans like to follow sort of the intrigue of it. Sure. And that the player ultimately would have the, would have the uh, power to decide whether or not they wanted to go to a team. The reality is that this existed before yeah. the intrusion of the draft and the intrusion of of uh, of ownership trying to find ways to restrain trade. I mean, the 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 first draft I think was the NFL, and it was explicitly stated as a method of controlling payroll and reducing. The, the the power and the success of the bigger franchises in the league. So leagues have for decades argued that drafts are a way to promote competitive balance and a way to keep the biggest markets from gaining an unfair advantage. Um, and of course, that's you know, there's an illogic to it, too. It doesn't really work that way. Um, and the only reason leagues get away with this legally is because that they have um, basically antitrust exemptions on for labor. So these are these drafts are governed by collective bargaining agreements. And if unions were to say, we think the draft is an anachronism and it does a disservice to not only incoming players, but to other players, 
then that would be the only way to go about abolishing. Well, it depends on what you mean by illogic, right? From the league's perspective, it's totally logical. Oh, sure. It's a way, as you said, to restrain salaries. Um, it's a way to distribute talent evenly if the league sees itself as a single entity and its collective health is important. It's a way to ensure the teams that finish at the bottom of the standings don't finish on the bottom forever. And sort of as as you mentioned, Jay, like there's a whole kind of spectacle and a whole like kind of media ecosystem around the draft too. And in your version, you tried to create yeah. something that that would mimic that. But just like, you know, honestly, that is a big reason. Like the NFL draft is probably the biggest one. But if we were to come up with a hypothetical, that would potentially be a challenge to come up with a non-draft system that would get people like as hype as the drafts do. Well, I, I actually think that people would be more interested in in this system after a couple of years. I do think that there is something about the fact that you can you know what the order is beforehand that makes the draft kind of sequential and logical in the in the way that people will write about it. So if you know that the Suns are picking first, you can be like, well, the Suns need this, this, and this. But I, I don't know if that's necessarily true. Uh, if, I mean, I don't know if that would necessarily go away under uh, a system of free agency because I think that, and I, I actually think that it would be more interesting for the way in which a lot of people, especially draft draft heads, uh, because you know it, it's not like your casual fan is is reading every single draft thing. Like this is a sort of passionate group that knows a lot about basketball and. I mean, I, I just think that, like, let's say when Anthony Davis came into the NBA draft and everybody was agreed that Anthony Davis was the best talent, perhaps since LeBron that had come in, you know, it, it's actually more fun, at least I think, to sort of be like, well, actually, what is his value at the age of 18, you know? Um, and then a couple of years later, when Anthony Bennett, who nobody thought should have been the number one pick in a draft where everybody thought that, uh, you know, those players, the top five players probably would have been picked in the teens, during uh, Anthony Davis's draft, you know, I, I think that that would sort of be a different type of number. And so each draft would have a different, almost like a different valuation cumulatively. I think that would be kind of fun to figure out. And I, I guess I just don't see where the, the analysis of players would, would break down, where it would be less engaging uh, than it is now under a system of, of free agency. Yeah, I think the only thing that would be missing would be sort of the dramatic element, like people on a stage surprising you. And I guess the surprise could be... Can we, can we be, all wear suits still? That's, that's yeah, the caps? What about the caps, Jay? <laughs> and the hugs and the dap. Well, and the, dap the, yeah. the, the hugs and everything are great, but I, I think that somebody suggested this on Twitter, and I don't remember the name, but I thought it was pretty funny, which was that like basically you have a draft itself in which everybody has to make their <laughs> final decisions and final bids have to come in. And that, uh, you know, it's sort of like when I, I don't like this, these types of ceremonies. And so but I think it's a little bit better when the person is going and making a lot of money. But, you know, when high school kids uh, commit to a school and they have like five hats, you know, on the table. In front the of them, dance. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You could do stuff like that, I think. Um, you could I, I don't know how this works with the access that the NBA would be given. But obviously, this is all fantasy. So, like, uh, you know, you could even have like cameras inside of the war rooms as people uh, put in, you know, <laughs> competing bids and they're like, oh my God, Phoenix went up to 19 million. Yeah, so it's like a giant, it's a giant, you know, fantasy draft. You do yeah, it as yeah, a fantasy yeah. auction. Yeah. 
And I, I, I actually think that would probably translate better to the fan base because that is certainly something that they are familiar with, you know, then it, it would make the league a little bit more less opaque. Well, the, the, the NBA wouldn't be the, the NBA wouldn't be the first league to try this in, in the United States. It would be, but the, uh, there's a the cricket league that started a few years ago in India, the highest, um, the sort of super league for cricket does an annual auction to redistribute talent every year and seems to work there. Um, I mean, really this is about changing tradition and about the law and collective bargaining and, you know, the, the, getting back to the illogic question, Jay, I mean, I remember yeah. at, the, at the dawn of free agency in baseball in the 70s and early 80s, uh, you know, Charlie Finley, the manager, the uh, owner of the Oakland Athletics, was the most sort of out, outspoken and on the fringe owner. And when the owners and Marvin Miller were fighting about sort of terms of free agency, Finley's suggestion was make them all free agents. And he didn't say it in jest. He said it because he understood that the market actually works to redistribute talent. And that's what we'd be talking about here, um, finding a a, a more efficient way to redistribute talent. But I do think that the league would have legitimate concerns to ensure that, you know, you'd have to still work within the framework of these giant salary caps so that the Warriors couldn't sign Luka Doncic or whoever. So there's two versions of it. The first would be within the salary, current salary cap, and that makes it easier for for parity argument to to make sense, right? So uh, yeah, the Warriors, like I, I, I'm sure the Warriors have more money than say the Atlanta Hawks right now, and so if the Warriors wanted to pay 20 million to Luka Doncic, which I bet he could probably, I, I bet he could get 15 right now, you know, like like a 15 four year contract. Um, Aiton could probably get somewhere around 20. Uh, you don't want him to just go to the Warriors, but if you have a salary cap, then the Warriors can't spend that anyway, right? Because uh, they're capped out, and it rewards teams for saving money and being like, oh, in three years, this guy is going to be in the draft, and we want to spend all our money on him mm-hmm. as a young kid. Um, but uh, the, the reason why I initially made this argument uh, you know, uh, in 2014, I think, was because I thought it was a good, compelling reason to get rid of the salary cap. And I had a hard time believing at that time, given that the NBA had just signed its huge TV rights deal and all the franchise valuations were skyrocketing, that most teams couldn't afford a much larger payroll, you know? And so I didn't quite believe that somebody like the Washington Wizards, who if they feel like they're one player away, and that player happens to be Marvin Bagley or or DeAndre Ayton, that they wouldn't just pony up and pay that, you know? Um, I also felt like it would be uh, funny in some sort of way for you know a team like the Kings who you know their owner is wealthy as well you know what if he paid 45 million dollars for DeAndre Ayton because he thought that DeAndre Ayton uh under like a 10-year contract or something like mm-hmm. that because he felt like DeAndre Ayton was was that valuable to his franchise um I don't know I I think that that to me at least in terms of a market market uh idea is more interesting and if you can't afford to be an NBA owner under that then there are plenty of people including Larry Ellison and some of the richest people in the world who will take your spot yeah I mean there's certainly a logic to what you're saying if you're gonna blow it up you might as well blow the whole thing up but um, I think there's no particular reason why you would have to connect draft uh, you know killing the draft with killing the salary cap. Um, And I think, you know, another point that I would make is that if you look back to baseball, before 
baseball instituted the amateur draft, all of the talent really went to the Yankees <laughs> yeah. um, and maybe a couple other teams. But, you know, the Cardinals had a robust mm-hmm. minor league system, the Dodgers as well. And I think that what you might see here is that, you know, while it sounds well and good, that the Hornets and the Kings could outbid everyone, you know, especially if we're imagining a universe in which there's still a salary cap. You know, these players aren't stupid. Like, they understand the value to their, like, careers and to their brands to go to the Warriors or go to the Celtics or, you know, God forbid, the Knicks um, or, you know, the Lakers (laughs) or whoever. I don't – I'm not sure that this would give – uh, or the the Hornets or franchises that are not doing well or that are not well run, I think they might actually be worse off in right. a system that, like this. Th- that's the risk, right? The risk is that well, – it's not really a risk to fans. It's a risk to the league. It's a risk it's to the a league. Risk, or it's, it's a risk to the local fans. Well, it's also a risk to this to this notional idea of, of competitive balance, that if this doesn't do something to help redistribute talent, then that's probably not a good thing for the league. I mean, look at baseball – um, a current the current structure for signing international players is very similar to an auction. Um, teams have an allocation every year with which they can spend on whatever international players they want. There's no draft. Um, it's still an open market. It's less open than it used to be where the Yankees did go out and sign whatever Japanese or Dominican you know, player that, that, that was hot that year. Not necessarily just the Yankees, but there were other powerful teams that had a lot of money. Um, but this has helped to sort of create a better more equitable way of signing international talent. I think the difference with the NBA is that these players are already brands. They're already known commodities. They're not 16 years old. Um, so, you know, you'd have to build in some mechanism. And maybe it is through the salary cap, like you said, Jay. I mean, maybe there is some sort of system in place that does acknowledge placement the previous season in terms of bidding. Well, my, my final point would be that from a union perspective, I think this would be a hard sell, especially if you're imagining like an uncapped world because like people got so pissed off with like Glenn Robinson, who was a really good player as the number one pick, getting a huge amount of guaranteed money before he'd even been in the league. Like I just have a hard time imagining. The NFL restrained that in terms of what the top picks could be. Yeah, and the NBA did too. But um, I just have a hard time imagining union members, you know, that uh, the NBA Players Association signing on to a deal that would like advantage guys who were not yet in the union. Right. Well, that's probably probably why it can't be a totally open, spend whatever you want market. I mean, leagues have done everything in their power to restrain the amount of money that incoming players can receive so as not to disadvantage either middle tier players or even players on a higher end. Yeah. I mean, when I I wrote this thing for the first time, you know, years back, uh, the NBA reached out to me and, uh, <laughs> you know, the, I don't know, I, for some, I've written about this twice now and both times the NBA has been, has gotten kind of mad about it. And, uh, I don't know why. And it, you know, like I, I certainly am not at a status in the basketball world or even as a writer in general where anybody should be worried about what I'm writing. But, uh, you know, they, their argument was that it would disadvantage mid-tier veterans, which is, you know, like somebody making $8 million a year right. is going to be harmed by it, which is why I was essentially saying, like, you know, the best version of this was where the mid-tier veteran could make their money and the, the rookie could make their money um, in an uncapped system because I think that would get around some of the 
problems uh, that would come up. I, I as for competitive balance imbalance, like I do understand what you're saying, but I think that right now, if you look at some of the superstars in the league, it's not like when they were coming into the draft that these people would all be given twenty million dollar contracts. You know, like uh, Porzingis, for example, Giannis. Uh, I think all these guys probably would have been signed to very favorable contracts. Uh, I don't know if anybody, un, even under an uncapped system, would be giving. Giannis, who I think was a 15th pick or something like mm-hmm. that, that they would be giving him $20 million a year. Most, most likely, he'd probably be getting about what he got for his rookie contract. Uh, now, uh, obviously, the top talents would still be getting a lot of money, but it wouldn't be tiered towards what year they happen to enter the draft. Like uh, It would just be tiered towards whatever their talent was coming in, which I actually think is probably a better system. Um, you know, the one thing we haven't touched on here is that the the biggest criticism of the draft in recent years has, of course, been tanking. And there have been other proposals to remedy the draft. There was the wheel proposal where teams would get to draft in Love each slot every 30 years um, on, a, on a straight rotation basis. Um, this would help eliminate tanking, it would seem to me. Is that part of the, of the, the impetus, Jay? Yeah. I mean, I actually, look, I, I don't have a moral problem with tanking, but I don't like it. Like, I don't like the fact that so many games are irrelevant. Um, I remember the Warriors when they were trying to get Harrison Barnes, like starting five centers. And I was like, this is kind of, it is kind of embarrassing for the league. Uh, I don't think, and I think that's why the league really wants us all tanking because it sort of, you know, it, nobody really wants to watch these teams play. Uh, and I, this completely takes away any incentive for tanking. I mean, all of the things, the only reason teams tank is to get more lottery balls in the lottery. There's no lottery. They're not going to do that anymore. And if they can just spend their cap space, then there's no real reason to tank. I think that actually makes player development a lot easier because the guys are in competitive environments all the time. And I think that that... You know, like I, for it, I, I would just say the number one reason would be like, don't you want to get rid of tanking? And you know, uh, with that, I, I actually the wheel system to me is crazy. You know, like I, I don't, I didn't quite understand how that would even work. Like this is a much more simple, elegant solution, I think. Well, and the other part of the solution here, Jay, is that that it encourages it would encourage teams to do everything in their power to be attractive to incoming players as well as free agents. Do better. And then you will get better players. <laughs> Do better. Exactly. That could like be the I, motto. I mean, it's you know, it's not just like these sorts of PowerPoint presentations that they put together or these dinners that they have for the players that are coming in. I mean, I think that that ownership should be more incentivized to try and get young talent to come there. I mean, it's like almost any other business. Uh, yeah. How quickly? How quickly could you change a culture by having a great player come in quickly? Yeah, and, and how much fan interest could you generate? It really, and you know, what is that worth to you? Like that, those are all the types of decisions that every single other business has to make. I don't understand why NBA teams don't have to make that type of decision because of the draft. I think for me, the strongest argument here. I mean, I'm I'm all for the players being able to choose wherever they go, but for me, I'm delighted with the idea that bad owners would get punished because. <laughs> yeah. Every the, the reason that owners in all leagues want the system is because there's no way for them to fail. And like that's why all these leagues have, you know, revenue sharing. There's like right. no way as a sports owner to fail. Every and this one, would be a way for owners, for owners to, fail. to fail. Every one of these restrictions that's been, in, that's been placed on 
payroll and salary and bidding for athletes over the last 40 years has been done to save owners from themselves. Yep. And that's over now in, in Jay's world. We're, uh, we're blowing it up. Jay Caspian Kang is a correspondent for HBO's Vice News Tonight. He writes for the New York Times Magazine, and he's the co-host of the podcast Coin Talk. Jay, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Now it is time for After Balls. In the intro for the draft segment, I mentioned the 1947 BAA draft. The BAA would merge with the NBL a few years later to form the NBA. Anyhow, the fourth pick in that uh, BAA draft was Walt Drapo who at the time was UConn's all-time leading scorer in men's basketball, but would never play in the pros because he was busy playing Major League Baseball for 13 years. But don't forget the number two pick, Stefan. Glenn Glenn Selbo. Glenn Selbo. Yeah, of course. He was taken by the... Toronto Huskies, come on. Who folded before his career started, so he ended up playing for... Another team? (laughs) Oshkosh and Sheboygan of the NBL powerhouses. Mm -hmm. But hold on, Stefan. Glenn Selbo also played minor league baseball in Grand Forks, North Dakota, Quincy, Illinois, La Mesa, Texas, and Midland, Texas. So take that, Walt Droppo, basketball and baseball in the pros. How do you like take that, Walt Droppo, as a remember <laughs> Zelmo Beatty-esque catchphrase? I don't know. I think the Dropo, Dropo. I think it's Dropo. Is it Dropo? Is it Dropo? I think it might be Walt Dropo. I don't know. Let's just... Say them both and see see which one we like. Take that, Walt Dropo. Take that, Walt Dropo. I mean, Dropo definitely sounds better. Dropo sounds better. So if the Dropo family is listening, consider going with Dropo. All right. Let's uh, let's stick with Selbo. 316 batting average and a 454 yeah, never, slugging percentage never made in the, the minors. Major, never made the majors. Some Something is afoot. I blame Dropo. Uh, Stefan, what is your Glenn Selbo? England fans, of course, will recall that at the 1990 World Cup in Italy, the three Lions were eliminated in the semifinals by Germany on penalty kicks. Sometime after that game, England striker Gary Lineker is said to have said this, football is a simple game, 22 men chase a ball for 90 minutes, and at the end, the Germans win. Lineker is now a popular television commentator with a Twitter feed that's worth following. Over the weekend, on that Twitter feed, he shat on Piers Morgan, who was getting into a shouting match with him for some reason, as uh, Lineker once did on the field, literally. He fell ill during a game in that 1990 World Cup. He also dusted off his famous line after Germany's last seconds win over Sweden. Lineker wrote, football is a simple game. 22 men chase the ball for 82 minutes and the Germans get a player sent off. So 21 men chase the ball for 13 minutes. And at the end, the Germans somehow fucking win. Lineker has been dining out on football is a simple game for years. He wrote another version of it last year after Germany beat England in a friendly 
and with good reason. It's a great line. I haven't been able in newspaper databases to find a first use from Lineker. Some writers go with attributed to Gary Lineker. Lineker himself seems cagey about taking full credit for it. When a follower on Twitter wrote to him, I trust it is legit, Lineker wrote back, ha, But let's assume that Lineker did indeed say it. What he was doing was lamenting and praising the inevitability of Demannschaft, while also simultaneously mocking the idea that football is, in fact, a simple game. Lineker was having a go at old-time coaches who uttered bromides like football is a simple game, which sounds like a deep thought but actually isn't. The most prominent pre-Lineker utterer of the bromide was Bill Shankly, a Scotsman best known for coaching Liverpool in the 1960s. 60s and early 70s. He gets credit for two uses of the line. The first is football is a simple game based on the giving and taking of passes, of controlling the ball, and of making yourself available to receive a pass. It is terribly simple. And the second is football is a simple game made complicated by people who should know better. That version of the line, also attributed to Shankly, is sometimes rendered as football is a simple game complicated by idiots. A coach named Graham Taylor said in the early 80s, reflecting English sensibilities at the time, football is a simple game. The man on the terraces is not interested in seeing 15 consecutive passes in his team's half of the field. I hate sophisticated football. This sort of empty calorie faux wisdom isn't unique to association football. I found football is a simple game referring to American football going back to the 1940s. Football is a simple game effectively played by athletes disciplined to simplicity. Football is a simple game. The team that hits the hardest and puts people on their back more often is going to win. Football is a simple game that is made complicated by coaches. Mitch frigging album once used the line. But spinning off of Lineker is the most common way to go. The line itself is often mangled. I found in stories, football is a simple game. It's 11 against 11, and in the end, Germany win. Football is a simple game. A match lasts for 90 minutes, and at the end of it, the Germans win the shootout. Football is a simple game between two teams of 11 men. You play for 120 minutes, and Germany wins on penalties. Some writers have added a round before ball. I need to know it's a round ball. Some add always before win. Germany always win. There are dozens of adaptations on Twitter. Our friend Roger Bennett did it after the U.S. women won the World Cup in 2015. Football is a simple game. 22 women chase a ball for 90 minutes, and at the end, the United States win. I consider that good use, big moment, nice parallelism, faithful rendering. Manchester City, Iceland, other teams have been subbed in for Germany there, both seriously and ironically. After a Moscow derby last year, a reporter wrote, football is a simple game. 22 men chase a ball around for 90 minutes and then play is stopped twice because the fans set off fireworks inside the stadium. It's kind of funny. Gaelic football is a simple game. 30 men pass the ball side to side for 70 minutes and at the end, the hurling comes on. I have no idea what that means but I'm going to allow it. As for other renderings, not quite as good. Football is a simple game. 22 men chase a ball for 60 minutes, and at the end, the Patriots always win. That was written by CNN's Chris Saliza on Super Bowl Sunday in 2017. It got 1,800 likes, mostly from people who probably didn't understand the reference. I'll assume 
Saliza didn't piggyback off of ESPN soccer commentator Adrian Healy, who tweeted pretty much the exact same thing 20 minutes earlier. You know, it's possible that he just got it. He knew the phrase. The most appalling use of football as a simple game, though, Josh, goes to this quotation from FIFA magazine in 2014 from our dear friend, Sepp Blatter. Football is a simple game that becomes complicated once you attempt to explain the offside rules to your wife. <laughs> you're, you're shitting me. I am not. Oh, my God. Sepp never disappoints, never does he? Never does. No, he doesn't. Josh, what's your Glenn Selbo? On Sunday, Panama's men's national soccer team scored its first ever World Cup goal. Panama, the quintessential team that is just happy to be there. Stefan, they celebrated wildly, as did their fans, despite the fact that said goal made the scoreline England 6, Panama 1. As you pause to wonder how Panama made the World Cup and the U.S. didn't, and just a warning that that pause could last up to four years. Uh, I also want to mention that you should watch the clip of Panama's announcers listening as the nation's anthem played at the World Cup for the first time. Let's just listen to a snippet of that. It was moving. There were hugs. Check it out on uh, Twitter.com. But given that this is Panama's first World Cup, there are a lot of guys who suited up for the national team who never got to hear that anthem on the world's biggest stage. One of them is Luis Moreno. He's a defender, 76 appearances, scored zero goals for Panama between 2001 and 2011. But that's because he was very invested in his defensive responsibilities. So good job, uh, Luis. Uh, But Moreno did something uh, that no other player in soccer history has ever done that I am aware of. In February 2011, during a game between Moreno's Colombian club team uh, Deportivo Pereira and the club Junior de Barranquilla, the latter's live owl mascot got on the field and was hit by a ball. It was a bad scene. Uh, Moreno had a bunch of options here. So what do you do when there's an injured owl on the field? You can cradle the owl in your arms. Tenderly. You can wave on some owl-specific medical personnel or just a generalized paramedic-type squad. Or you could do nothing, which is always my preferred option. Uh, Instead, what uh, our friend Moreno did was jog over and punt the owl over the touchline with his left foot. Um, I got June Thomas of the Waves podcast, the great and illustrious June Thomas. She's a Spanish speaker. I got her to to, uh, translate a local news report about the incident for me. Um, And so it begins with uh, the moment when the spectators become angry. The commenter says, que feo, how ugly. Um, And then there's a member of the civil defense forces of Colombia who comes on and says that people were so full of indignation that they threw things at Moreno, and kind of rightly so. Um, then June says that uh, they, they quote a guy who says, it's unfair. How can you kick an animal? He's the animal. I can't stand it. Then um, they quote Moreno, who says, actually, and this is a, a good one for the all-time excuse Hall of Fame, I did it to make it fly. It wasn't my intention to hurt it. It was just an owl, an owl helper. Um, and then they quote him as saying he's since shown remorse. I'm sorry. 
It wasn't my intention to do any harm. I apologize to the fans in Barranquilla. Uh, the owl was then taken to a veterinary clinic for evaluation. And then you've got uh, – first you have the owl on camera and it's like looks incredibly sad in this like little owl box. Then they quote the vet tech saying, we have to wait and see if it will respond to the medication we gave it to help with the shock. So the owl was in shock. And again, rightly so. The owl got kicked by an asshole, a soccer-playing asshole. So other news reports said that fans at the game were chanting murderer. Um, The owl was initially assessed as having minor injuries in addition to shock, but it would later die. And they – the. Uh, the cause of death, they would say, as shock, that the owl died of shock. Um, The blog South American Football reported that uh, Moreno was getting death threats. He faced up to three months in jail. In the end, he got a two-match ban, a $560 fine, and he was ordered to do community service at a zoo. Although I have not been able to find whether he was detailed to like some sort of owl area or if they kept him as far away from owls as possible. Stefan, uh, you might recall various accidental bird killing incidents mm-hmm. in baseball, the emphasis Randy on Johnson. accidental. Yeah, Randy Johnson threw a fastball that made a dove explode in 2001. There's also Dave Winfield. I'm surprised you didn't yep. go to Winfield first. Uh, 83, throwing a ball from the outfield, killed a seagull. Mm-hmm. But there was also, um, and I didn't know about this until I was doing my bird-killing research, a more malicious event that happened 15 years ago. The Chicago Tribune's headline from July 14th, 2003, Cubs prospect struggles to shake bird-killer label. In that piece, Charles Robinson described how minor leaguer Jay Kuk Ryu, then a 19-year-old, he was from South Korea, uh, I had an osprey on a utility pole and just started winging baseballs at it. And he eventually struck the bird in the head. The osprey was known as Ozzy, like also like this owl from the Columbia. The owl had a name too? Yeah. I wasn't able to find a name for the owl, but it was like a known owl. It was an owl that hung out. Um, Ozzy the osprey was like, well, ospreys are like rare birds. Like when there's an osprey around, you kind of know that there's an osprey around. And so fans at this like Daytona Beach ballpark, they were like knew this osprey. They were into Ozzy the osprey. Um, So this was like not a cool thing to do, obviously. And the osprey, like the owl would die six days later. Um, He did an interview uh, uh, with Charles Robinson. This is through an interpreter. He was quoted as saying, I want people to know me inside, not just the outside. I want everyone to know I'm not a bad person. There were some difficult things after the bird was hit, but in my mind, I did something wrong. I feel bad. I want to get over it, but it takes time. I know that. I just want to gain the trust of fans again. Rio was immediately demoted. They got him out of Daytona. They sent him to the Cubs affiliate in Lansing, Michigan. He was charged with a misdemeanor. I haven't been able to find how the case was adjudicated, Um, but he eventually made it to the majors. He put up a 1-3 in career record with a 7.49 ERA. He now plays in Korea for the LG Twins and is hopefully no longer an enormous bird-killing jerk. Stefan, take that Waldroppo. That is our show for today. There's no evidence that Waldroppo ever did. It was really just an early instance of VAR, veterinary-assisted refly. Does that make any sense? <laughs> that makes bad. no sense, makes but no sense. I appreciate the effort. Um, I wanted to say that our producer, 
is Patrick Fort, and our intern is Meredith Allison. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>